This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from this year's Idea Fest, a two day event at the University of Wisconsin Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about the big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, a new take on criminal justice reform. Two federal judges, one retired and one still active, joined Cap Times associate editor John Nichols for a conversation about their experiences on the bench and their relationship and perspectives on criminal justice reform. Nichols spoke with former appeals court judge Paul Higginbotham and current federal district judge Lynn Edelman about the history of mass incarceration in the state and what it might look like for the state to meaningfully pursue decarceration. All right, I'll let John take it from here. Brothers and sisters, look at this. This is the worst lit stage in the history of the world. We cannot see you, so there's the possibility that there is no one here. But on the chance that you are here, this is the session, one of the last three sessions of the Cap Times Ideas Fest, and our topic today is what I believe is one of the two most important topics that you could talk about as regards what we ought to be doing but aren't doing. And the other one you get to fill in, on climate change, racial injustice, uh, inequality, you can run the list. But on any list, criminal justice reform ought to be one of the two major issues because it ties together so many of the other crises of contemporary society. And we wanted to talk about it today, in part, I, I argued for doing this session because I don't think you should ever have a dialogue about where policy is going, where ideas are going, without trying to push the limits on criminal justice reform. And logically, there might be an assumption, well, if you want to really talk about criminal justice reform, the last people that you would want to gather is a couple of judges, right? I mean, why would you want judges? Because judges are just those, those folks who sit there on the bench and, you know, kind of do the last stages of an awful process. And in too many cases, that has been true. But this year, I talked with a, um, a judge, a newly elected judge, young guy, down in Houston, Texas. His name is Frank Bynum. He's 37 years old. He's a, he was a uh, death penalty lawyer and a defense lawyer in town. He decided to run for judge because he thought there should be a democratic socialist on the bench. 
And amazingly enough, because Beto O'Rourke ran for the US Senate and everybody down ballot got swept in, uh, including in his county 17 African-American women newly elected to judgeships. Um, so he got on the bench and he said, I want to get rid of cash bail. I think it's absurd when I come in, you can applaud. This is an applause-oriented session, folks, so feel free. He said, I want to get rid of cash bail. And they said to him, the older judges and the prosecutors, everybody said, well, that'd take you five or 10 years. It's a complicated process. And every morning he would come in as the youngest judge, one of the youngest judges. There'd be about 100 people who'd been arrested overnight who were being held in a cell. And they were held through the night because they didn't have the money to go home. They didn't do anything bad enough to go to jail. Some of them may have been innocent. Didn't matter. They still sat in the cell all night long. Frank Bynum said, that's an injustice. They said, well, it's going to take five to 10 years to get rid of it. When I talked to them in July, they had eliminated it. They had emptied it out. And they did the radical idea of saying, you know what? When somebody gets busted for some minor offense, if you tell them when their court date is, you'd be surprised at how many will show up. And in fact, in many of the cases, they have a higher level of people now showing up for their court dates than they did when they were using cash bail. And what Frank Bynum said to me was, criminal justice reform is easy if you want to do it. And so I brought two people who have been involved in these issues for a very, very long time and who know what is hard and what is easy. They are both judges, two of the smartest people in American jurisprudence. One and a half of the smartest people in American jurisprudence. And one of our, one of our judges, one of our judges is Paul Higginbotham. And if you know anything about American jurisprudence, you know the reason that Paul always defers on these issues is because he's a member of the Higginbotham family. And his uncle, cousin, I apologize, treated as an uncle because he's older than you. His cousin, Leon Higginbotham, appointed to the federal bench by Lyndon Johnson, um, one of the great jurists of the 20th century, a guy who there but for a couple of elections probably would have ended up on the US Supreme Court, and who left the federal bench to go do a very, uh, you know, like a little difficult task, which was the reconciliation process in South Africa after the end of apartheid. And so he, he comes from this stock, but his work here in Wisconsin has been incredible. A legal aid lawyer, then elected, at, well, became a municipal judge, um, elected as a county circuit judge, then elected to the appellate level of the state court where he served for many, many years, and through it all, a judge of incredible principle with incredibly high standards who often bristled at the system in which he served and is now, because he is retired, able to speak a whole lot of truth to power. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Higginbotham. And seated over here, seated over here is Lynn Edelman. Lynn Edelman is a federal judge for the Eastern Circuit of Wisconsin. Before he went to the federal bench, Lynn Edelman was a highly regarded lawyer, 
great deal of experience in Wisconsin and other places. He served in the Wisconsin State Senate. He headed the Judiciary Committee. And in the 1990s, at a point when Tommy Thompson and others were basically breaking through the barriers to try and expand prisons and do all sorts of things, one of the most constant questioners and challengers was Lynn Edelman. He went on to become a federal judge. His service on the federal bench has been, in many cases, revolutionary. I, won't, I hope I'm not quoted on that. Um, but he also writes frequently, speaks out frequently. I dare say he is the most outspoken federal judge on the bench today, at least when it comes to being outspoken to say good things. And Lynn Edelman is on the federal bench in part because of the same reason, or one of the reasons, why Paul Higginbotham ended up rising in Wisconsin courts. And that is because a certain US senator thought that both of them were brilliant. Lynn Edelman got to the federal bench because Russ Feingold fought every step he could to get Lynn Edelman on the federal bench. And when Paul Higginbotham ran for Dane County Circuit Court judge, Lynn, Russ Feingold did something he had never done before. And that is he made a TV ad for a judicial candidate. I think it's the only time he ever did it, and it was to get Paul Higginbotham on the court. So with that said, I'm John Nichols of the Capital Times, which puts on Ideas Fest, and I'm your moderator today. And I want to start out on this panel by, by asking Paul, Judge Higginbotham, to give us a sense of, uh, and this is an issue you've been talking about and thinking about for a very long time, especially since you left the bench. Give us a sense of why you think this is such a vital issue, and really start us out on where, how we ought to think about criminal justice. Well, before. yeah, I, I'm going to go on that last piece. I think when we're, we have to ask ourselves, really, what is criminal justice reform? I mean, what are we talking about when we, we refer to criminal justice reform? What are we reforming? Um, if you take a, a, a close look at what the um, 2020 Democratic presidential candidates uh, are saying about criminal justice reform, they're covering a really broad spectrum of issues. And some of them, in my view, don't fit into criminal justice reform, but they feed into it, things like affordable housing and homelessness and education. Uh, those are all topics that are very worthwhile uh, working on. But when we're talking about criminal justice reform, in my view, we're talking about examining a system that makes decisions right from the point of where there's police contact and all the way uh, through when uh, folks re-enter into the community after leaving whatever institution it is, whether it's a jail or whether it's a prison. Uh, in, in my view, that's the, that's the spectrum. It's huge enough. It's plenty enough. But I think as we're focusing on criminal justice reform, we have to keep our eye on the ball. And, and, and the, the ball is effectively this. We have to change how we think about people in our society in punishment and how we treat people who commit crimes. As a judge, it was my job to, to ensure public safety, and I've been a victim of crime twice. So I know how it feels on that other side. At the same time, we have to think about who are we as a society, how do we think and approach pe about 
uh, people who uh, are not healthy, folks who are doing things that uh, they weren't born to do, it just so happened that as they went through life, they went this direction where many of us went the other direction. So how do we approach, what is our thinking about as a society, how do we help those folks get to a point where they're no longer unhealthy, which also means safe for us and our community. And I think that's important because I think it informs how we move forward. We have experienced in the last 30 years this drastic approach of punishment. Most of the research indicates that that has not worked. And not only hasn't it worked, it's actually been counterproductive. It has made communities less safe. For many years, I've talked about the, 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 the prison system as being a model that simply, if, if, if we were stockholders, we would be very, very angry with the prison system, with the criminal justice system, because we're being sold a bill of goods. And those goods are, you put them in prison, they're gonna come out, you're safe. Well, that is just patently false, it's wrong. So we as stockholders ought to be holding government uh, accountable for misrepresenting what actually has been happening. So that means we have to demand that government rethink how we go about doing this business. And how do we go about doing that is something that I will talk about, but it is something that I offer to everybody in this room to personally take time and think about, well, even your own kids. Okay, if your kids mess up, what do you do? Well, you know, there's the punishment model, but you know, there's also the model of trying to teach your children how not to do that and how to do things better. Well, why can't we transfer that same thinking to folks who do acts in our community that threaten us? Most of these people, most of the folks who are in the prison system are mentally ill and or have alcohol and other drug problems. Well, is prison the right place for them? We have to rethink that. The model that we've been uh, applying for the last number of decades simply is not working. It's gonna demand bold action by our governor, by our state legislature, by the district attorneys and the public defenders and social workers and educators and employers in this community. Paul Higginbotham. Before I go, before I go to Lynn, I want to do, just have you follow on one thing, and that is you were a judge through the, the 90s uh, into the 2000s, even the 2010s. So you ran a court through a lot of this period where we really saw mass incarceration take off. Absolutely. And as you were there, um, it, I'm interested in why you think it happened in that period. Well, I think, you know, for those of us who are old enough, we, we know that, especially back in the 90s, there was this huge political push of tough on crime. And that's still going on. And at the same time, we cannot ignore racism. That is a critical piece of the mindset that our country uh, still entertains. And it's horrible. So when you put those two pieces together and plus poverty, then you have a really bad combination. 
the problem as I saw it uh, and still see it as, as a, a former appellate judge was judges uh, were able to exercise sentencing discretion in such a way that they were basically unreviewable on appeal. Appellate judges effectively, according to the legal standard, rubber stamp the decisions by the trial judges. And these trial judges come from many different communities and very different backgrounds, and they have many different ways of looking at people in their various communities. The problem is, is that those sentences cannot be changed, effectively non-reviewable. And I think that that standard needs to change but because we have all of these other issues still sitting out there, poverty, racism, and still the tough on crime mentality, uh, it makes it very, very difficult for judges to get their arms around the problem. Thank you, Judge Higginbotham. Uh, and, and I will note that as you talked about raising your kids, I think three of your sons are out in the audience here. Yeah, they're, they're embarrassed. They will, uh, yeah, we won't, yeah, we won't make them stand up. They're, they're, in the very, well, they're tall enough sitting down, they are, they're still standing up. There you go. And, uh, Judge Edelman, let's start, let's start in some of the, the same area. I'm, I'm interested in how we got here and, and how we ought to be thinking about some of this. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, and you actually being, having been a legislator in the 90s. Um, you know, Judge, before you go on, I have to say this. I was a Senate page in 1980 when this gentleman was in the state Senate, and I had the distinct privilege of watching him work and... Judge, you were a fantastic senator. Thank you. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. Um, okay, I'll try to do a little historical perspective. Um, basically, I would say since about 1970, that's sort of a rough date to start this, the attitudes about criminal justice and the policies that kind of were responses to those attitudes, became much harsher. Um, in 1973, Wisconsin prisons held roughly 2,000 inmates, um, which was 45 out of every 100,000 residents. And three decades later, there was sort of an unbroken string of increases. Before, before 1970, it had, those numbers had pretty much stayed the same. Then there was this sort of unbroken streak of increases so that um, in 2004, we had 23,000 inmates, more than uh, 10 times the size in 1973, and 417 out of every 100,000 state residents. And the national numbers are pretty similar. So during that, starting around 1970, there's this, been this huge increase. So why? I mean, there's, there's different ways you can think about this. There's some kind of broad theories, which actually Paul touched on a couple of them. There's this classic book by a professor named David Garland, and he basically focuses on the, what he calls the crisis of governance in Western nations in the late 20th century and basically says that a lot of factors, global competition, deindustrialization, deunionization, a lot of social and economic forces like that threatened people's standards of living. They, they fueled all kinds of instability and anxiety. 
And um, government was basically unable, and you could argue maybe still is, unable to effectively address those problems and sort of crime control, political leaders essentially resorted to crime control and punitive strategies towards people that are offenders as a sort of a, a way of kind of showing that government could still do something. And also as finding as kind of a scapegoat. I mean, one could argue that, 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 that Trump has almost sort of expanded the idea of the scapegoat to a lot more people than just offenders and that that's sort of a, kind of a mode of governance now. Anyway, that's, that's one theory. Another theory, this one I, I kind of find very interesting, I don't know where it leads us, is by a, a, a guy named James Whitman. And basically he goes back to the 18th century and, and he, he wrote a book called Harsh Justice. And the book was basically about this punitive quality of American justice. And he compared it to the continental, Western Europe, like France and Germany mostly. And their sentences are like anywhere from one quarter to one tenth as short as our sentences on average. The incarceration numbers and, and levels are way, way, way lower than ours. And he, uh, he basically attributes that in a kind of a paradoxical way to the fact that they have really a tradition of stronger states in, in Europe where they're not so, I guess by that he means that they're not so affected by, by politics, that there's strong bureaucracies that basically have set certain policies and those policies are not affected as much as like here, three strikes and you're out, everybody gets upset and suddenly there's 10 new punitive laws passed. And it's apparently the way, the way it works there is much less susceptible to that. And then the other thing that he really, this is sort of interesting, he attributes it to, he attributes their leniency versus our harshness to the whole, almost you could say social, social uh, hierarchies that are much more part of traditional Europe as opposed to this sort of broad brush egalitarianism that we have. And basically his argument is that, that the high, having high status people means that they haven't, that everybody gets sort of treated as, as, a, as a person. No one's personhood just by the fact that you committed a crime doesn't mean that you're subject to kind of degradation. Um, but here, where everybody's supposedly equal, it's really, uh, he argues that that kind of causes a, a certain sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a decline in status, a, a, a kind of an impulse to degrade, to show that these people are unequal. Anyway, it's a sort of a complicated argument. A lot of people don't like it, but it's a very interesting argument. Uh, again, I don't know if you buy it or not, but where it leads is another question. And then there's Michelle Alexander's book, which was that she gave rise to this whole term of mass incarceration. And hers is basically a racial explanation. Basically that the whole punitive policies and attitudes that developed in the 70s and after were responses to the civil rights movement, to black gains, 
and that it was essentially a kind of a way of reinstitutionalizing Jim Crow. We couldn't no longer make people separate in a in the sense of legally, you couldn't make people legally separate. So incarceration then becomes a kind of a. So I don't know what those 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 are sort of all grand theories. Maybe some of all some of what some some of each of parts of each of them are are true. Um, the good thing, though, is I think recently there's so many people in prison now that there has been a kind of a change of attitude. Now it's maybe not that widespread. But, you know, the phrase mass incarceration and panels like this where the subject is, hey, why are so many people in prison and how do we get them out of prison? And th th I don't think that's, that's sort of new. That wouldn't have happened, up, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's something that, and, and I think that's a really positive sign that there has been this change of attitude. But... Michael O'Hare, who's a law professor at Marquette, he wrote a book about about uh, Wisconsin criminal justice, and you don't want to go too far with this new attitude. I mean, it's it, 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 he he did some polling. Sixty-two of respondents in sixty-two percent of Wisconsin respondents believe that courts are too lenient. Eighty-four percent support tougher sentences for repeat offenders. Only 34% say that the justice system is doing a good job of ensuring that people who commit crimes receive the punishment they deserve. So all this, all this demagoguery that we've had for 35, 40 years with politicians have contributed to a lot has, you know, this doesn't go away just because somebody writes a book about mass incarceration. So there's a different attitude now among some people, but we haven't seen a huge amount of action. And, and politicians on this issue, as Paul said, are not normally real courageous. I mean, to some extent, I mean, Republicans were responsible for most of the terrible laws that we have now, but Democrats were by no means exempt. We have this horrible truth and sentencing law in Wisconsin, which, which abolished parole, Abolish parole cause, it causes all these revocations for technical violations. Why we have that law? It was sort of a macho fight between Attorney General Doyle and Governor Thompson. The sponsor of the legislation was Scott Walker, who was then in the legislature. So that's, that's why we have truth in sentencing. We also have terrible federal laws. I just... I, 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 the, the, the federal sentencing is governed by what's known as the Sentencing Reform Act, one of the great misnomers of all time. Um, and it, that created the, the, the sentencing guidelines, which for a long time were mandatory. Um, who was the sponsor of that law? Ted Kennedy, Sentencing Reform Act. And, who, and whose committee did it go whipping through? Joe Biden's, okay? So there's a, there's a lot of history here on both sides that's not very attractive. Um, there's another bill. This is, this is the worst law that I know of. It's called EDPA, the Anti-Effective, anti or no, I, uh, I don't know, Effective Death Penalty, and Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. What it did basically was end habeas corpus whereby a, a prisoner who was un, unjustly convicted, unconstitutionally convicted in state court, 
to, could apply for federal, to, for federal relief based on constitutional rights. It's, it's, that, that law just gutted that bill. Who signed that law? Bill Clinton, okay? So there's a lot of bad history, and, and even to start making progress, there's a lot of bad laws that have to be somehow undone. Um, things are changing, but, uh, you know, we got a lot of work to do. Judge Edelman. <laughs> now, before, I, before we move on to the next area, I just want to, you were um, in the legislature for a long time, chaired the Judiciary Committee in the State Senate. Um, Wisconsin actually started good on criminal justice issues. We were one of the first states, a rare state, that barred the death penalty pretty much throughout our history. And as you pointed out, um, it, up till 1970, we didn't have a lot of people in prison. And, and I'm interested in, in why this better state, which I'll, I'll say, whether others will, this better state went, ended up going along with everybody else on this. Um, why, didn't, why didn't we resist? Well, there was some resistance, but... By, by you. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, but there were other people. That there was some resistance, but, uh, I mean, we were a better state in some ways, and this tide was pretty universal and pretty hard to stop. We still don't have a death penalty. That's to our credit. And, and a lot of... A, there, were a, there were many Republicans that, were, that didn't want to... I think Tommy Thompson was against having the death penalty come back. And um, so... I mean, our, our, we didn't totally uh, undo our, our good traditions, but these forces are hard to resist. These, for, these forces, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have, we have life means life. We abolish parole. So it, it was just a, a, strong, uh, a strong tide that wasn't, wasn't easy. I was not there, I'm proud to say, when truth and sentencing got passed. Um, and uh, I don't know if I could have stopped that bill. I stopped a lot of fairly bad bills, but some of them just had so much oomph that, you know, even if you didn't like it, you, there was, you, couldn't do, you couldn't just shut it down. There was a famous uh, saying in the state legislature long ago that uh, all the Democratic politicians who lacked courage knew, knew that a bill was wrong, terrible bill, lacked courage, they would, they would not stand up and speak out against it, but they would say, boy, thank God that, that Lynn Edelman is in charge of the Judiciary Committee. <laughs> and many a bill did disappear there. Um, Paul, uh, Judge Higginbotham, uh, we've talked a little bit about how we got here. We've talked about some of this. You've been thinking a lot about how we might start the pivot out, some I, of the things we might do. And, and there are a number of things. I, I want to point out that... It's very ironic that Wisconsin started off being, you know, good on this topic and then gradually moved to being bad on this topic. And what's really interesting in Wisconsin is this whole movement that, uh, that Lynn was talking about to shifting the attention away from locking people up to doing other things uh, has been taking place in other parts of the country. Wisconsin is just like one of the dead last states to even to respond to this topic. The time is now. <laughs> we can't wait anymore. And um, 
There are some things that are starting to happen, but it's very, very, very slow. And I think, uh, you know, some things were found in, in uh, Governor Evers' uh, budget that are, were, in my view, more infrastructural rather than true reform, like uh, hiring more prosecutors, uh, uh, upping the amount of uh, uh, money that uh, public defenders, uh, appointed public defenders, get paid per hour and, and things of that sort. It doesn't truly solve the problem except insofar as that it, it can move the process along fast, faster, and that's a due, that's a due process issue, and, and, and I'm not denigrating or discounting the significance of due process. I mean, due process lies right at the very center of our criminal justice system. But I still think we're dancing around the edges. We have to take this issue straight on. And one of the biggest problems, and I've already alluded to this, is the lack of commitment by our society to helping people with mental illness and alcohol and other drug problems. It's a very serious problem, and it's a problem because these are mostly the folks who are committing the crimes. After they're arrested, they're trapped into, uh, into the punishment system rather than diverted into a system that actually can help them and therefore not commit crimes later on. But once they're into the system, there really is very little to identify that they have these issues and that they need the help. Instead, they go through this process of, of uh, deep criminalization of mental health and, and, and alcohol and drug addiction. And then they end up in either jail or they end up in prison. And then when they're in prison, not a hell of a lot happens to them, except that when they pop out on the other side, they are ill-prepared to be better citizens. So identifying those issues then informs what we ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. So in this last budget, uh, more money was uh, put into uh, mental health and, uh, and alcohol and, and drug addiction uh, treatment programs, but by far not enough. There are still so many folks out there who are waiting for, uh, for treatment. Um, this is a serious problem on the uh, Indian reservations in Wisconsin, and I know because I've talked with a number of, of uh, the, 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 the chairs of, of the tribes, and it's a problem in Milwaukee, it's a problem in Madison and in, in, in other municipalities. And so as long as we're not taking those issues seriously, we cannot reasonably expect to see something good happen on the other end. So we need more, we need diversionary programs, programs that would divert people from going directly into jail effectively once, once they're arrested. Some decision has to be made. Are we going to take them to jail or are we going to uh, take them uh, to uh, the hospital to help them deal with whatever gave rise to their conduct? Okay. What's happening in Wisconsin, which is really very good, is, is there are uh, diversionary programs throughout the state, not in, in most of the state, but in, it, it's, it's developing more and more. Courts have really gotten quite savvy about this, and there are, there are drug courts, there are alcohol courts, there are VA courts, there, um, and, and so the, my recommendation is, is that more effort uh, be made in trying to make that uh, a statewide policy, and that those kind of programs 
uh, be implemented in uh, the communities which will require commun uh, uh, a lot of cooperation among all of the stakeholders. But what happens when they're in prison? Not nearly enough. As a judge sitting on the Court of Appeals, I saw a lot, a lot of cases uh, brought by uh, prison inmates about uh, conditions of confinement. And one of the main things that I saw over and over again was there really wasn't much focus on rehabilitation, but rather on punishment. As I said at the very beginning, we have to change how we think about that, because if our expectation is, is that once folks go through that system and they get out and that, well, they're going to be fine, we're wrong because the system isn't set up right now to do that. So what is it that we have to do? We have to, we have to um, in terms of vocational education inside the prisons, I recommend that we have certi a certification of, of inmates who actually go through these programs or are successful in these programs and then work with employers so that when these folks get out of prison, they can then go into jobs. And the employers will have people who are job ready. Folks will be able to afford housing. They will be able to uh, uh, at least be on a better foot on getting the kind of mental health uh, treatment and support that they need and significantly stay off of drugs and stay off of alcohol. Now, I could, I could talk about this topic all day long, and I'm not going to do that. Um, but I th one thing I really want to touch on is that reentry. The reentry piece is a critical, critical piece to what happens to folks who end up in prison. There's simply there aren't sufficient funds for organizations uh, and programs like TAD. There, uh, there are community organizations uh, throughout the uh, state that work directly with folks who get out of prison, and they just simply don't have enough resources in order to assist folks find housing, get the kind of treatment, uh, support groups, and things of that sort. They're critical because they're working directly with folks. And I think our government has done a very, very poor job at paying close attention to them and empowering them to be able to do the kind of work that is necessary to ensure that the public is safe and at the same time that folks who have been incarcerated become healthy, become uh, healed. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a question of what's humane in our society. And if we can shift our thinking in that way, then I think it will help us be clear about how we're going to help folks who obviously have a lot of problems. And I think the punitive thing doesn't work for a lot of folks, and I think we've got to shift how we're looking at this and rethink about how we're going to treat and view people in our community who have problems. And let me just, one quick follow, uh, and. I think you would also make an appeal, because we've talked about this quite a bit, for some judicial reform. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I mentioned was giving um, more authority to uh, appellate judges to review sentencing decisions uh, by trial judges. And maybe trial judges aren't going to really particularly like that because they don't like anybody dealing with their discretion. But I've sat on the trial court, and I've been on the Court of Appeals. So I have the, 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 the real uh, unusual view of seeing both of those uh, situations. 
there's also, I was talking with Charles Franklin um, just before we started about whether judges ought to be elected or whether they ought to be appointed, keeping money out of uh, judicial elections is, is, a, is a huge problem. Uh, but I think judges need to work very closely with uh, uh, prosecutors and uh, criminal defense attorneys and, and un coming together with an understanding that the sentences simply, and this, this echoes what Lynn was talking about, the sentences are simply too long. They're just too long. How long can somebody who is uh, convicted of burglary, how long does it take for them to get the message? Is it 15 years? Is it 10 years? I will argue that it's even far less than that. We, so, so there's work with the legislature, there's work with the court system and the stakeholders who are in that system. And, and this might be a little idealistic, but I think we have to Take the courage, be courageous, and identify just where the problem lies and decide that we are going to do something about it rather than dancing around it. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. I want to bring Judge Edelman back in and say, you know, Judge Higginbotham solved some of our problems for us. Why don't you, you know, finish it off and solve everything else? And, uh, and, but tell us some of your ideas on how we might get out of this circumstance that we're in? Well, ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's like a lot of things. It's a political question. If you, and Paul is absolutely right. If, 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 if people want this, if they're, if they're strongly enough committed or if the elected officials, for whatever reason, are strongly committed, um, then you can make it happen. I mean, there's lots, of, there's lots of things you can do. I just actually, by coincidence, yesterday I got in the mail um, like a brochure, and it's, the title of it is Actions Governor Evers Must Make to Reduce and Repair the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. And then there's, I think this kind of assumes that the legislature is not going to be a lot of help um, <laughs> on, on this project, which is probably a, a correct assumption. Um, but uh, but there's about six or seven single space pages about all the things that <clears throat> the governor could do just to make the correction system work better, reforming parole commissions, scaling back all these revocations, um, pardon and release eligible people. I mean, it goes on. There's lots of things you can do if you want to do it bad enough. I mean, it's kind of like I was talking to somebody who was at the last panel, which is about you know, the politics of 2020, and they were talking about the gun issue. And it's true that 90% of the people, probably the people of the country, support pretty substantial gun reform. But if, if they're kind of supportive, but they're not going to make a big fuss about it, then the 10% that are just passionate are going to have a disproportionate impact. That's even more true here because... I mean, you know, there's some people maybe that are passionate about mass incarceration, but 
it's uh, you know it's 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 something that that uh, it's hard to really develop a groundswell for that. I mean, they passed in Congress. They passed this First Step Act not too long ago, and and the Sentencing Commission. Um, has done a few good things. I mean, they they reduced the, they call it the uh, um, drugs minus two. They reduced the sentencing guidelines for two levels for crack offenders because of, it, and they did it retroactively because of the disparity between powder cocaine and crack sentencing, which was tur turned out to be very unfair to the African-American community. and. So there's some tentative steps, very tentative, very mild, in the right direction, but um, you really need a lot of, you know, like anything, you need will, you need, uh, you need political oomph. And, and this even applies to, to judges. Let me, this is a really sad commentary in my opinion. You know, I, I mentioned the federal sentencing guidelines, which were the they came about as a result of this Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. So the guidelines were mandatory uh, until 2005. And in 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court um, decided a case called Booker, which actually came out of the, this, this district. And um, basically, and the Supreme Court, it's done a lot of terrible things lately and probably many more to come, but one area where it hasn't been that, it hasn't been fairly decent is in criminal justice, which is sort of a curious fact. In Booker, the U.S. Supreme Court made the guidelines advisory. That was hugely, hugely important for, for um, I don't know, certainly for me. <laughs> I mean, it, it really made... It made the job, I mean, the, trying to deal with the, the mandatory federal sentencing guidelines where you had to imprison people for God knows how long that you knew it was completely inappropriate and destructive. It, that's been a huge, a huge benefit to job satisfaction, probably of most judges. But here's the bad news. The bad news is that even though the federal sentencing guidelines now are completely advisory, you don't have to follow them. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to really. You can. If the guideline says 20 years and you give probation, and you got a decent reason for it, that's fine. Um, what's the result, though, countrywide across the whole United States? Mostly the sentences aren't pretty much the same as they were when the guidelines are mandatory. So most of the judges are just kind of, maybe they'll go a little bit below. I mean, the guidelines have become sort of like a, an anchor, that that's sort of the starting point. And then, you know, guide, judges think they're real lenient if they go 10 months below the guideline, which might be 90, 100, 200 months. You know, I, love me, I'm a liberal. I went 10 months below the guideline. Um, that's a reference to an old Phil Oaks song. I don't know, hope you, for those of you paying. Uh, anyway, so uh, in answer to John's question, if there's, enough, if there's enough commitment to doing stuff, there's lots of things. It's, it's fairly easy to do a lot of good things in this area. Um, and Paul mentioned some, and there are many others. 
but the key is really wanting to. And, and, it, and I'm just going to jump in. Um, bail reform is so important. We have to take a really careful look at what is the purpose behind bail. And it's been to ensure that somebody appears in court. Well, right now, there are tons of conditions loaded on uh, to um, uh, folks who are charged with crimes that they have to comply with. And if they fail to comply with even one, the prosecutor can bring that back into court and throw that person into the jail. Well, there is something that that doesn't pass the smell test because jails then are loaded with folks who are there because they've had their bail revoked. Another problem that we have is a lot of the folks who are in prison are there because of revocations. They're there because either they've had their parole revolt or probation revolt or, or ex what is called extended supervision. And they can be revoked for a simple rule violation. And that doesn't solve any problems because if they haven't committed any crime, then what is, how is that going to be effective? We, we have to think about what works, what doesn't work, and get rid of what doesn't work. And a lot of this hasn't worked. If we reduce the number, if we approach uh, revocations in a different way, and this has to happen through the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, we can actually reduce the prison population substantially. Um, and, and one final thing is, and, and this is in relation to truth in sentencing, there are a lot of people in prison right now who were uh, incarcerated prior to the implementation of truth in sentencing. That means they were there under the old parole law, which meant that they could only serve a full maximum of 75% of their term. They're eligible for parole uh, at the point of 25% of their term, and they can get out. Well, a lot of these guys, because of, of the thinking in the Thompson administration, got kind of swept under this whole thinking related to extended supervision. And the result is, is that these folks aren't getting paroled because the parole commissioner decided, well, not enough punishment. We're going we're gonna to keep him in for a lot longer time. And that has been one of the biggest problems with, with prison overcrowding. You reduce the number of people who are sitting in prison uh, under the old law, you're going to have a huge reduction in prison overcrowding. So you take a combination of those solutions, the result will be, we'll be able to uh, shut down the prison at Wapan, shut down uh, uh, another one of the prisons, and because they're totally outdated, and not build any more prisons, but rather focus on community supervision. I just want to add one thing that I, I, I should have mentioned before. One thing that is really important is to have some specific numerical decarcerative goals. That, it, that so let's slow it down for one second here and make sure, and I know this is the super smartest audience in the world, but does everybody know what decarcerated or decarceral, what we're talking about? We'll ask a federal judge to define it, it, it for means, us. It means having fewer people incarcerated. It's decarceration. It's pretty complicated. But it is becoming, um, a, it is becoming a term that we are using a lot as an alternative to mass incarceration, right? Is that, that if we have mass incarceration, our goal is a decarceral approach. Right. Well, anyway, California 
they had chronic overcrowding, and that led to a court order uh, requiring the state to, to, to uh, reduce the prison population by 38,000 people. And everybody said, can't be done, impossible. Well, what they did is they did it, and they had a bold plan to do it, and they turned a lot of it over, and this is another important point, to local governments. Like, because sometimes, you know, if, if, if counties and cities have sort of a stake in the matter, including having to pay for some of the incarceration, that really creates kind of incentives for, to do a different kind of uh, job. If, if you just say, okay, the state's paying for it, we'll send them to Wapan, that's the end of it, we're not responsible. That's sort of one of the ways where you get so many people in prison. So anyway, this California, they did it, they reduced the, they reduced the prison population by 38,000 people and there was no appreciable impact on public safety. There you go. Political will. Um, let me, we've got a whole bunch of questions here, and thankfully, these two gentlemen uh, actually answered a bunch of them as the process came in on things like truth and sentencing. But um, I, I, like, I like this one, which is simply, uh, should we just let everybody who's in prison on a marijuana violation out right now? And, um, but perhaps to extend on, on it as, as someone else does, um, one of the things we haven't talked about is people who come out with a record and may come out with a record for a marijuana bust or something that, that is, is society itself doesn't think of as particularly significant, but it stands in the way, it can stand in the way of a job, it can stand in the way of reintegration back into society. How should we deal with, with some of this? And I'll, uh, I'll start with... Well, we're, we're, we're talking about expungement, yeah. and it's, uh, there's, there's a bill currently uh, working its way through the state legislature. I think it's a weak bill. Uh, it needs to be much stronger than what it is. Um, but uh, getting back to the original question, I, I as, as, a, as a trial judge, I, I can tell you this. Out of all of the violent crimes that I saw, maybe one of them was related to marijuana. Seriously, maybe only one was related to marijuana. The rest of it was alcohol and cocaine, all right? The state legislature is behind the ball here. They have to legalize marijuana in the state, both recreationally and medically. You got to, this, this war on drugs is ridiculous. It's cost a lot of lives. It's ruined a lot of lives. So on to the question as to whether or not we ought to empty the prisons for those who uh, were convicted of that. that. That's a little bit more complicated than, than one would think because uh, decisions about uh, whether a person goes to prison um, relies on a whole host of factors, including was there another crime associated with it? Was this just one of several other convictions, that uh, charges that they were convicted of? What their criminal history is, uh, and so forth. So uh, assuming, uh, for the sake of argument, that somebody is in prison for the, for the sole purpose of a marijuana conviction, and assuming that it wasn't dealing, because I think you gotta split the two up, um, my answer would be, uh, once we legalize marijuana recreationally and, and uh, medicinally, then we have to take a look at uh, releasing those folks who are in there because of a marijuana conviction 
and expunging their records. Because at that point, we as a society have decided um, that, that, was, uh, um, that, that this is conduct that should not be criminalized and that as a society, we're going to accept that uh, type of conduct. And if these folks aren't a danger to society, then I don't know why we're keeping them in. Let me just respond to that too. Um, the fact is, and let me just try to maybe dispel, I think, a kind of a myth, which is that there's tons of kind of small-time marijuana users in, in prison. I don't think that's true. And it, it, what's true is that most of the people in, who are in prison are, some, are people who've committed a fairly serious offense. That's the case in Wisconsin. And you are not going to have meaningful decarceration or meaningful reform of the criminal justice system if you only say we're only going to look at nonviolent offenders. Sorry, that's not the case. The, the, the truth is there are many people who have committed crimes that are so-called violence, but there's a great deal of difference between many of these people. Some had one incident. Some are very old. Some uh, have no prior record. There's a million different kinds of circumstances uh, and backgrounds of people who have committed a, a so-called violent offense, let's say sexual assault or homicide. Um, and you're not going to have meaningful reform unless you start talking about those people. Because there's not enough people that are in, in fact, there's nobody in prison who's in there for smoking a weed. I mean, you know, it's just not the case. So this whole thing, when a, when a politician says, oh, I'm for prison, I'm for correction reform, we can't have all these nonviolent people in prison, it's baloney. It means a meaningless statement. There are people who have committed crimes in, of violence that are in prison that shouldn't be there, that are no danger to the public, that can be dealt with much more effectively in, in other ways. And this sort of whole idea of the violent criminal versus a nonviolent criminal is a myth that really interferes with meaningful discussion. I, 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 briefly, I'll just, I had a close friend who went to prison for a couple of years. Um, he actually was a former, he's no longer alive, he was a former alderman in Milwaukee. He was a very effective guy for many, many years. He had a bad drinking problem and he made some, he, he, he spent a couple of years in prison. We, we used to have lunch, he told me that, um, you know, there's a very small number of people in the prison that really are dangerous, maybe 10%, 10, 15% of the, total population that are really dangerous and should be in prison. But most of the rest, there's all kinds of more effective ways. And, and this wouldn't just help them. This really helps the community. You know, in the black community, they really suffer because all these men are gone. I mean, there, a, lot of, a lot of black men are, it's almost like that's part of their lifestyle. They don't, they don't go to college, they go to prison. And it has huge impacts on the community, on the families, on the children. Anyway, so decarceration is not just being humane to people that are wrongly, you know, sent to prison. It, it has a broader impact on the whole society. And that has an impact on who can vote. Yeah. Big, big issue. But, but, I, but I agree with you, Lynn, in that um, it was my experience, both as a trial judge and court of appeals judge, an overwhelming majority of the people who are in prison 
don't belong there. This gets back to the point of rethinking about how we are going to approach folks who have problems in their lives. They end up committing crimes, but they aren't ultimately dangerous people. I think we have to reserve the prisons for folks who really need to be off the street, and folks, they're there. But this whole mass incarceration piece is, is, um, has, has totally blinded everybody into thinking that this is a way that, to make our community safe. And it's not going to work out like that. And it hasn't worked out like that. Let me take another question here. Uh, Judge Edelman, when you were talking, especially about the, the, and we've got a couple questions in this area, when you were talking about the, the damage done to communities, where, where you have, um, I bristled at the use of the term lifestyle. You know, it, it, and I know what you were trying to, I think I know what you're trying to say there. It is that, that it's become such a, it's become such a reality, right, that people end up, end up going in, into the criminal justice system. Um, and then when they come out of that system, they come with a record, they come with, with all, all of this baggage. Is it, you were, you were in politics, is it possible to make a, an argument for criminal justice reform as, as a racial justice and, and a social justice initiative beyond just the, the basics that we're talking about here with this? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, there's no doubt, I mean, there's no doubt that there's a huge racial component to this. Now, whether that's, whether that's the reason we have mass incarceration or whether that's a, an, an effect of mass incarceration, is, it's, it's another question, but there's no doubt. Um, there's a book I didn't mention by a guy named Bruce Western, who it's called Punishment and Inequality in America, and the whole point of the book is he shows how much prison experience affects life opportunities. And... Um, economic opportunities, marital opportunities, civic participation opportunities. Um, and because there's such a high percentage of African-Americans, men, African-American males that experience this, it really does ex exacerbate the, the, the already existing racial inequality. Um, I mean, there's really, he argues that there's a whole different life experience and life expectancy for young black males. Huge collateral consequences. So there's no doubt that that's, that that's exists, that that's a fact. Um, now how much you can use that as a way of, of arguing for prison reform or for criminal justice reform, I think a lot of people, I think that that's gonna make some, it's gonna ring a bell. I mean, I think that when people hear about how, you know, how, I've argued that the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is in charge of these guidelines, should go into the inner cities, and not only the inner cities, in rural America where the, there's a huge meth problem, and hear testimony about how the punishment scheme that they've created affects people. Um, I think, yeah, I think definitely that could have an impact. You know, it, it's, I really want to touch on that, too, because it, obviously I might have some vested interest in it. Um, I, I talked earlier about uh, the, the, the initial decision as to who to arrest, okay? 
And this even includes traffic stops, who to stop. So if you're thinking about who's in the system, you have to think about who makes the decision right at the very beginning as to who gets into the system. And I think we have seen throughout this country in the, in the last number of years that the exercise of discretion by law enforcement has gotten out of control. So we need police reform. It is a critical piece of this whole process so that folks, so, so that we have law enforcement officers, and, and I know plenty of cops, they're great, they're great law enforcement officers out there. But the decision to arrest is pivotal because once you make that arrest, then they're in the system. And the decisions that are being made are obviously skewed, and there is a strong racial component. Is it the only one? Obviously not. But it can't be ignored. And it has to be something that each one of us, even in our own hearts, has to take in and really think about, and then demand of our public officials and law enforcement to change how they're thinking about it and change what they're going to do about it. So we are at the, at the last stage, and we've kept you for a couple more minutes, but I have to, I gotta bring Paul, or Judge Higginbotham back in on one final element here. He has been reading the plans that the uh, Democratic candidates for president, I don't know that, that President Trump has come down with a plan so far, uh, but- has, Does he ever have a plan? Well, <laughs> some of them, maybe. <laughs> but he's been reading the plans of the Democratic presidential candidates, and we had a question from somebody who wanted to know, um, who's the best on, uh, of the people running for president? Who's best right now on criminal justice reform? Well, <laughs> that's a, I'll start off by saying that all of them have good ideas. Okay, Cory Booker uh, has got some great ideas. Um, Elizabeth Warren, I think, might have the best plan. It seems to be the most comprehensive plan that I've read. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, I, 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 I'm not sure how thorough her plan really is. I think she could do a lot more. Uh, my feeling is, is that she's sort of skirting around the edges on that. I think you have to deal with these issues very directly. Uh, in terms of, I, haven't I have not read uh, Julian Castro's uh, plan, and I have not read uh, the plans from the others yet. Um, I am thinking of writing an article, uh, reviewing all of those plans, and providing some commentary on that. Because um, I think it's important for people to have some sense of this, because when you're thinking about criminal justice reform, this is not, you know, this, some of this stuff is highly technical. And, and, you know, for those of us who are in the field or have been in the field, uh, I think it behooves us to be able to explain it in ways that people can best understand it. Um, but I think right now, I think Elizabeth Warren probably has the best plan going. That may be the more newsworthy statement of the day. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know her, by the way, and she's so not you're paying not, me anything. You have been paid anything. to make no, this announcement. No, um, and I, I, I suspect that we won't ask the sitting federal judge which presidential <laughs> no, candidate he is. I don't uh, think so. Um, and, but, folks, you've been a wonderful audience. I think that these two judges have, have given us a, a great starting point for this, but certainly nowhere near an end. I'm delighted to remind people that Judge Higginbotham has, it, he did advise uh, Governor Evers's transition process and occasionally has the governor's ear. 
And um, I hope that we will see you speaking out more in more forums and that because I happen to think what you have to say is unimaginably useful. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for Judge Higginbotham. Thank you. Thank you. And I do want to emphasize to folks, Judge Edelman, um, I think, said some provocative things today, but said them also within the context of being a sitting judge. And he is very cautious about that, trying to make sure that, uh, that he doesn't talk about cases or, or cross lines. And yet, I think it is so very important that our federal judges and that our judges not be high priests that we never have contact with. And so I think we've had a rare and, and very positive moment here where a federal judge has come to talk about an, a vital issue. Please give a round of applause to Judge Lynn Edelman. Thank you to all of you. We appreciate you, you coming much. to Cap Times Ideas Fest. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. Thanks so much for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. More episodes will be coming out shortly. In the meantime, do check out our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splainers. You can find those and Live from Cap Times Idea Fest at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or just about anywhere else you can find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back real soon. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.